0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy
1: George. Well, we're here again for another Beeson Podcast, and today my guest is Dr. C. Ben Mitchell. Ben holds the Graves Chair of Moral Philosophy at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He's also the editor of Ethics and Medicine, an international journal of bioethics. Ben and I have been friends for a long, long time. and It's a pleasure, Ben, to welcome you to the Beeson podcast today.
0: Well, thank you very much, General.
1: And not only do you teach at Union, I should say that for a number of years, I think 10 years, you taught at Trinity International University, and occasionally we've had you as a guest professor here at Beeson as well. So you've been active in shaping the lives and thinking of a new generation of students.
0: Well, it's been a great privilege for me, and uh, I spent 10 years at Trinity and before that um, at Southern Seminary in Louisville. So uh, my my heart and my passion are for helping students think Christianly about uh, moral and and other uh, issues, and and also especially for helping equip pastors to uh, think Christianly about the issues that they face on a on a day to day basis.
1: So, Ben, tell us what is bioethics. Well,
0: bioethics, broadly speaking, is uh, the the moral uh, reflection, ethical thinking about. variety of life issues. Bio is life, and ethics, of course, has to do with moral reflection or ethical reflection. And Within that big umbrella term of bioethics, there are a number of subcategories like medical ethics, the ethics that deals specifically with physician-patient relationships and and the practice of medicine. Animal ethics can be described sometimes as a uh, subcategory of bioethics because it deals with animal life and animal ethics and a whole range of issues. But these days, uh, when people talk about bioethics, they typically either mean Medical ethics, or they mean some of the ethics that has to do with the, the developing biotechnological uh, issues, and, and uh, maybe we'll talk about those a little bit.
1: Yeah, and the and the journal that you edit, Ethics and Medicine, is kind of at the cross section of those uh, disciplines of life, right?
0: It is. It's a peer-reviewed journal that's over twenty-five years old. A colleague of ours, Nigel Cameron, was the founding editor of the journal. It started in. Edinburgh, Scotland, and migrated to the United States maybe probably over 15 or 17 years ago. Uh, it still has an international board, but its its aim is to bring together practitioners, medical practitioners and others, and uh, Christian theologians, pastors, chaplains, a uh, wide multidisciplinary uh, team, and bring them together to think about what we're calling Christian Hippocratism, which means the Christian theological reflection about medicine seen through the the lens of the his, history of uh, medicine under the Hippocratic oath or the Hippocratic tradition.
1: I guess I want to ask you, what has changed in this field over the last, say, 20 years? I mean, ethics has been around a long time. Medicine's been around, as you were indicating, since the Greeks Why now is this such a different and maybe uh, strained kind of relationship for us to think and talk about?
0: Well, I wish we had several days to talk about (laughs) that, but let me me, me just mention a couple of things along the way. First of all, in its original incarnation, medicine was viewed, first of all, as being for the patient's good, and secondly, um, was never to do harm. And so, under the Hippocratic Oath, for instance, physicians took a pledge that they would not uh, assist in an abortion, or that they would not end the life of their patients in euthanasia. Also, the Hippocratic, the Hippocratic uh, physician would not engage in a sexual relationship with any of uh, his patients.
1: Mm.
0: Today... Most physicians in the country, in this country, do not recite the Hippocratic Oath any longer. And in those medical schools where an oath is still repeated, in almost no cases is it the original oath, in fewer cases uh, than than before, the prohibition against abortion does not exist. And interestingly enough, in this day and, and age, none of the oaths that I'm aware of, at least, um, include the, the prohibition against a physician having a sexual relationship with a patient. So, in those ways, the practice of medicine, at least, it's formal reflection and commitment to virtuous practices, the uh, profession of medicine has changed. And, and of course, we've seen a sea change in the way doctors are perceived in our culture. We could talk a long time about that, but today doctors tend, this is not true of every physician, of course, but doctors tend to emphasize body plumbing more than they do virtuous practice Uh Ethical practice. And uh, so many physicians are great scientists, but they wouldn't want you to look at them as models of moral behavior.
1: Isn't the root of some of this uh, almost cataclysmic change that's happened in our own lifetime the devaluation and the de defining of what a human being is? Say a little bit about that change and how do do we think about what a human is? Because physicians, uh, medical uh, science, deals with humans, right? So what is a human?
0: Medical science at least says that it deals with humans, but increasingly medical science deals with things like lab values, or or patients are often identified by their disease. So that's the cancer patient, or that's the uh, appendicitis patient rather than that's Mrs. Smith, the mother of two children, the wife of Mr. Smith who lives down the road. And, and so you're right. Medicine as a profession and medicine as a science has tended more recently to almost dehumanize people and view them as either, as I said, either lab values or, or as their disease. The other area of medical ethics that is is changing rapidly that, that has to do with our understanding of what it means to be human, is that there are all kinds of new medical technologies that are asking us to reframe our understanding of what it means to be human. For instance, Um, Cloning. That's one of those areas of medical science that's developing, that's asking us to to, um, rethink uh, what it means to be uh, a human being, a unique individual created in God's image and likeness. Uh, Some areas that are are changing our perception of what it means to be human are cybernetics or the integration of human bodies with machines, and we could go on. Uh, genetic engineering, uh, uh, there are lots of areas of of, uh, biotechnology and biomedicine that now ask us to rethink what it means to be human, and in in my view at least, um, devalue humanity as uh, uh, the image of God, uh, uh, as, as the Bible tells us that we are.
1: Now, I know you've done some work on what we call transhumanism, uh, what is transhumanism, and how should uh, Christians think about it?
0: Yeah, this is a really good example of, of what I just uh, was talking about. Transhumanism is a philosophical and ethical perspective that argues that humans are transitional beings on their way to being something other than human, and and usually the, the goal is to be post-human. So your listeners will know about post-modern and post-Christian, and uh they're they're suggesting that we need to um rid ourselves of the frailties of our biological mortal bodies and enter some new phase of humanity that doesn't require bodies at all and so it turns out transhumanists tend to loathe the human body and human finiteness and long for an immortality uh a bodiless existence that can be achieved through emerging technologies.
1: You know, this sounds so much to me like uh, Gnosticism of the early Church. They disparaged the body. They wanted to be reunited with the divine in some kind of uh, cosmic way, but without uh, the messiness of having to deal with the limitations of being a human in this world.
0: Well, I think there are huge parallels. In my view, the transhumanism combines... Gnosticism with a kind of utopianism, and sees technology as the Messiah. Technology is going to be the means to help us achieve immortality and to release us from the confinement uh, to the body.
1: Uh, You've uh, contributed to a book called Biotechnology and the Human Good. Speak about biotechnology. Uh, Is it necessarily something that has to be done in a dehumanizing, transhumanizing way? Or can it be used in a positive, constructive sense from a Christian point of view?
0: Biotechnology can be um, used for good or evil, but there are lots of wonderful biotechnologies today that we rely on every day in our lives, genetic science, microbiology, there are lots of biotechnologies that that help us and that, that bring healing and restoration to human beings what has happened in some areas of biotechnology with the transhumanists is that biotechnology has become a tool to help uh, help us achieve our desires. And as we all know, this has a long history from Augustine and, and before even, but um, we are desiring beings and those desires can either be ordered desires, that is, desires that are consistent with both the nature of God and His will and uh, human flourishing, or those desires can be disordered desires, sinful desires, and biotechnology can, can be taken in, into the area of disordered desires pretty easily, I think, especially in the era in which we live, where technology seems to be the trump card or the answer to every problem.
1: Yeah. I mentioned at the beginning of our podcast that you uh, are a professor at Union University in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, and your university recently, I think within the last year or so, began a new journal called Renewing Minds. It's a wonderful contribution, I think, to the discourse uh, Christians ought to be having on lots of different uh, issues of of life and thought. Uh, And one of the articles is by you in a recent issue called The Future of Sex. I want to ask you to tell us a little recap of what you were saying there, because I think you were making a very important point related to both sex and procreation, and how they're very often reduced in our uh, current climate to a matter of personal desire and fulfillment without seeing it connected uh, to a wider goal or end.
0: Yes, well, I I began that uh, article uh, with a kind of thought experiment, a little fictional tale, um, but not so fictional as to be um, science fiction much longer, and it begins with a, an image of, of two people, a man and a woman, who are in a clinic, and they are meeting their baby for the first time, uh, but this baby is not in, in any woman's uh, womb. Uh, this baby is in an artificial uh, uterus, uh, and an artificial uterus technology is being developed now so that it would allow someone to develop uh, either an animal or a human baby uh, from conception uh, to, to birth. And so the images of a couple who are meeting their child in the uh, clinic, um, uh, uh, touching the uh, artificial uterus, uh, and my image is a portrayal of a couple who, by many lights today, would be seen as be, uh, doing a good thing. They're bringing a, a new life into the world. It's an extraordinarily pro-life kind of kind of activity. They're bringing a new life into the world. And because of this technology will allow you to even bring more than one human being into the world at the same time, um, it could be viewed as being extremely pro-life because you might bring... Bring four, five, six, seven children into the world through the uh, artificial uterus. Just uh, sort of, it might become a kind of normal course of of events to to use this technology. And my my thought experiment uh, was meant to ask us um, if that is a humanizing or dehumanizing way to think about reproduction. After all, what I take to be the biblical model uh, sees uh, the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage being the, the proper context for the procreative relationship that uh, human beings have in bringing children into the world. But if desire is all that's necessary and any, any means to achieve a good desire is acceptable, Then there could be nothing wrong with artificial uterus technology, even if it's just for the sake of convenience. Uh, A couple decides that they don't, they don't want to have the wife uh, stop working or she doesn't want to have the inconveniences of pregnancy. Uh, Well, then the artificial uterus becomes the technological way to achieve the desire both of having a baby and of avoiding all of the inconveniences uh, that go along with, with childbirth. I don't think it's past or beyond our imaginations at all to think about this being viewed as a very pro-life and a very kind of Christian model. As long as we think the desire is right, then the means seem not to matter, especially if they're technological means, because because again, I think in in most uh, contemporary people's minds, technology is an unalterable, unadulterated good, as long as you use it to achieve your good ends.
1: Well, I wonder if you could apply that in some ways to the debate we're all having in this culture now over same-sex marriage. We know this is a hot political issue. It's been talked about, resolutions passed, churches split over this. Uh, Talk a little bit about the issue, not not so much in political terms, but actually in what the acceptance, the increasing acceptance of same-sex marriage and really the redefinition of marriage what that might mean for the culture in which we live and for the very thing you're talking about in terms of seeking uh, an end, a goal other than mere personal desire and fulfillment? I think it's
0: without doubt the case that the predominantly thing that ethics in our culture is as long as I want something good and I don't hurt somebody else, and good means something that I desire, as long as I want something good that I desire and it doesn't hurt somebody else, then then it must be okay. And that's the way most people seem to think about ethics and morality in general in, in, in our culture today. So, extend that way of thinking about ethics to marriage. Do I want to be married to a woman? Is that my desire as a man? Well, then that's fine. Uh, do I want to be married to another man? Um, well, that's got to be fine, because as long as that man is consenting to, it can't possibly be hurting anybody else. And if and if I want to be married to multiple partners, a polyamorous kind of, of situation, I want to be married to multiple partners, well, what could be wrong with that as long as it's you know, we have consenting adults and, and it doesn't harm anybody else? And there can't be anything possibly wrong with that, because... Again, satisfaction of desires without harming other people seems to be the the one kind of litmus test that we have have held on to for making ethical decisions. So I think you're exactly right to suggest that the debate we're having about traditional marriage is a debate about whether or not uh, someone's personal desires could possibly be inconsistent with the common good, the good of everyone. And I I think that's where the debate is being played out. And those of us who champion traditional marriage are saying, uh, not only for biblical reasons, but also for human flourishing, the common good is best served by preserving the marriage relationship between one man and one woman, from which relationship children are given as a gift.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that last point because when you're talking earlier about as long as you don't harm anyone, very often uh, I think the question of the next generation is completely ignored. And what impact this will have on children and children to come and future generations. We don't know the full extent of it, but already we're beginning to see from various studies that are being done that this is not a good, an uninhibited good that can simply be claimed in the name of personal fulfillment. But there are, there is a downside, and I think as we see it unravel in our culture today, uh, we'll become more aware of how damaging it really can be.
0: Well, that's exactly right, and and uh, we see that, uh, for instance, we see harm to children in cohabitation, uh, in, in relationships where men and women live together but don't have the benefit of marriage. We see harms to children there. It's very interesting, isn't it, that um, God has said that the ideal relationship for, for children is in the context of one man and one woman in this one-flesh relationship. But, and what we know by experience is that every violation of that ideal results in human trauma. If there is the death of a spouse, it results in human trauma. If there's a divorce in the family, it results in human trauma. If there's, if there is a third party that comes into the family, an adulterous relationship, there is harm and, and there's human trauma. Uh, why would we expect why would we expect anything else um, if we if we uh, jettison traditional marriage? Why wouldn't we anticipate that harms would come? Well, the only way we can we can avoid that anticipation is if we are committed to the view that harm is narrowly defined, uh, meaning a harm to me or a harm to somebody that I my neighbor next door, but not harm in any kind of general way, and certainly not harm it could extend to future generations. Uh, So I think you're exactly right.
1: Now, Ben, a lot of the people who are listening to us today on the Beeson podcast are pastors, they're church leaders, they're people with responsibility in congregations, they're Christian people. Uh, And I wonder if you could just say a word about how all these issues we've been talking about today that you write about and study uh, relate to the church, and particularly to pastors and leaders who are responsible for God's flock in today's world.
0: I'm happy to, because that's how I got interested in these issues. Um, As you will remember, um, when we first met, I was thinking about going into Baptist history and historical theology. Mm-hmm. But it was in the crucible of pastoral experience that I had to face these issues. I would have someone come to me as a pastor and say, they want to take uh, Grandma off the ventilator. What should we do? Mm. Well, I first of all had to ask, what is a ventilator? <laughs> and then... Then I had to I had to quickly rehearse my my ethics class in seminary, and I realized I wasn't prepared to answer that question in my ethics class. all I was told was we shouldn't kill grandma, but i didn't I didn't know anything beyond that Is there a time to withhold or withdraw life sustaining treatments? Uh, uh how do we make those decisions? Who makes those decisions? Those were huge issues today. Pastors are not only faced with um, end of life issues, but increasingly couples are coming to them uh, early on in their marriage and saying, "We've been diagnosed as being an infertile couple. Uh, our, our fertility specialist has told us that we could use in vitro fertilization, or we could use um, a surrogate uh, mother, or we could use you know a vast array of different technologies to help us achieve a child. What should we do?" And so pastors are on the, the cutting edge, if you will. They're certainly on the front lines of these ethical decisions. They try to counsel uh, their church members about the, the array of moral concerns that relate to not just um, medicine, but also just how we live in, in this world. So my part is for pastors who are trying to bring the Bible and their understanding of contemporary issues of the day, bring them together to help prepare people before they face a crisis, to deal with these kinds of issues. And I don't mean by that that necessarily a pastor needs to to stand up on a Sunday morning and say, now this morning I want to talk to you about infertility and uh, reproductive technologies, but I believe that there are theological truths and biblical principles that if we teach them consistently from Scripture, people will be prepared answer those questions when they face those.
1: So when we face these issues in society and the culture around us, they have an application to the Christian faith. Don't run away from them. Uh, Dig more deeply. uh, Find the resources that are there, including some of the things uh, Ben Mitchell has written, uh, and use them, I think, to help give guidance to the Lord's people uh, in very difficult times as we face increasingly new and complex issues. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. C. Ben Mitchell. He is Graves Professor of Moral Philosophy at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Ben, thank you so much for giving us this time today on the podcast.
0: It's been my pleasure and privilege, Timothy. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George.